0: How many of you were excited to sing Christmas songs in chapel yesterday? How many of you actually sung Christmas songs on Thanksgiving? Heretics. (laughs) Just kidding, just kidding. My family, I think the day after was traditional. But I think Thanksgiving is a pretty good place to start singing Christmas songs. It's been probably about a decade since I've had the privilege of preaching around Christmas time. So I intend to take full advantage of this. Turn to Luke 1. That doesn't mean I'm going two hours. I think Mr. Van would kill me. Turn to Luke 1, 46 through 55. Mary's Magnificat, Luke 1, 46 through 55. A underappreciated text within our circles, an overdeified text within other circles. We will be looking at this from three perspectives, the literary, the theological, and the practical. I know Mrs. Rhonda Van Gelderen does an excellent job of of, uh, discussing Mary and her class Women in the Bible, which is coming up. I've seen the class notes, but us guys don't get to benefit from that. I think there's a lot in here that is important for ministry. Mary's Magnificat is inspired scripture. Luke included it for a reason here. It is profitable for doctrine, for a proof for correction in righteousness. In other words, Mary's psalm here is something that we guys in ministry should be paying attention to, not just the ladies. Luke 146 through 56 and Mary said my soul doth magnify the lord and my spirit hath rejoiced in god my savior for he hath regarded the low estate of his handmaiden for behold from henceforth all generations shall call me blessed for he that is mighty hath done to me great things and holy is his name and his mercy is on them that fear him from generation to generation He hath showed strength with his arm. He hath scattered the proud in the imagination of their hearts. He hath put down the mighty from their seats and exalted them of low degree. He hath filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he hath sent empty away. He hath helped in his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spake to our fathers, to Abraham, and to his seed forever. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for the Christmas season and the birth of your eternal son, Jesus Christ, our Savior. We thank you for Mary and the role that she has played. May we learn something from her, Lord, and around this time as we dialogue with Roman Catholics, may we be able to point to her son, Jesus Christ, in in such a way that Mary is not a rival to him. And in Jesus' name, amen. In 1910, Sir Walter Scott published an epic narrative poem called The Lady of the Lake. It contains romance, rivalry, good old-fashioned sword fighting, and a whole bunch of Scottish scenery. It's pretty much everything you could possibly want in a poem. The character of the title, the Loch Katrine, the Lady of the Lake, is a young Ellen Douglas, who will naturally be the cause of some good old-fashioned Scottish feuding figures. <laughs> At one point, she is in exile with her father... Hiding in a cave, and as the Scottish chieftain Roderick Du prepares to ride off to battle against the forces of King James, he stops and he hears something in the distance. It's Ellen singing, accompanied by a harp. She is singing a prayer to the Virgin Mary, and the very first lines of that prayer are Ave Maria. The great Austrian composer Franz Schubert adopted that song in 1825 based on a German translation of Scott's poem. From there, his memorable, haunting, very beautiful tune was then adapted to the Latin of the classic prayer to Mary, Hail Mary, full of grace. It has been sung in modern times by everybody from Luciano Luciano Pavarotti to Frank Sinatra. And if ever you hear me... (laughs) If ever you hear me walking down the hallway of BCM, cluelessly humming that song because I forgot to skip it on one of my Christmas CDs, you have my permission to gently thump me out over the head with your Bible. <laughs> gently. <laughs> the more I study the patristics in my own limited way, it's, it's certainly not my specialty, but the more I study in my own limited way, the more I am convinced that the, all the flaws of the Roman Catholic Church really run in conjunction with their worship of Mary. The more the Roman Catholic Church gets sophisticated, whatever point that origin might be, the more they embrace Mary as an object of worship. This may actually go back earlier than the Roman Catholic Church into the second and third century. Uh, at At a minimum, it starts with Jerome, but the Testament of Jacob, the Christianized version of the Testament of Jacob in the 200s or 300s, actually mentions the intercession of the mistress of intercessions, a source of purity, generosity, and blessings, the mother of salvation in regards to Mary. So perhaps by the early 200s, we already have that doctrine creeping in. Some time ago when I first came here, a family in the church asked me to look over a DVD about Mary that a lady had given to their daughter who was trying to witness to that lady. The DVD was all about Mary and her role in the Roman Catholic Church. The DVD states that Catholics do not pray to Mary. It says, asking for intercession is different from prayer. We are asking Mary and the saints to pray for me. Of all the saints, Mary has the office of intercession. Bizarrely, the DVD later declares of all, uh, declares that the Catholics are offering our prayers so that she can bring our prayers to her son. Later on, someone gives a testimony in the DVD. I had this realization one day that I had this constant intercessor. Yet yeah, who does Hebrews 7.25 say that our constant intercessor is? Wherefore, he is able to save them to the othermost that come unto God by him, seeing he ever liveth to make intercession for them the point at which anything or any person is addressed in terms appropriate only to the salvific work of the Son, at that point, that thing or person has become an object of worship. Popular Roman Catholic writer Marge Fenelon, in an essay on crowning Mary, writes, this is the time to crown our Blessed Mother, not just on the feast of her queenship, August 22nd, but every day, and even several times a day, crowning her queen of our heart, queen of the world, will make a statement about who we stand for and with, with and reclaim ourselves for Christ the King and his Queen Mary, Let's re Queen Mother Mary, let's re her every time we're weighed down by distressing news, confronted with hostility, angered over violence and injustice, or tempted to hit back after being clouded. And now a little bit closer to home. Erasmus of Rotterdam, we owe a lot to him. Erasmus, in his pan in honor of the Virgin Mary, writes, "'Singular glory of heaven, earth's sure safeguard, Virgin Mother Mary, see this poor soul of mine longs to propitiate your godlike majesty.'" As if with the burning incense of its praise, not relying on its own merits, but strengthened by your graciousness, it dares to encompass the vast ocean of your your praises with the limitations of human language. That's in volume 69 of his collected works. He wrote a lot. Later on in a work entitled, Prayer of Supplication to Mary the Virgin Mother in Time of Trouble, same volume, he writes, Help me, I beg you, my Savior, my salvation, my soul, and certain refuge, shine forth Mary, As star of salvation to me in darkness, guide me when I err, assist me in suffering. Here is my point in sharing with you all of that. To the extent that anybody attributes to Mary the salvific work unique to her son, and to the extent that anybody approaches Mary in an intercessory role, that person, had, that person will not access the gracious mercy of the Father. That person is still dead in their trespasses and sins, precisely because there is only one name under heaven by which we must be saved, and that name is Jesus Christ. I know I'm preaching to the choir here, but we need to know what we're up against. Significantly, as many good evangelical scholars have pointed out earlier in this chapter, when Elizabeth approaches Mary, she does not say, "'Blessed art thou above women.'" She says, "'Blessed art thou amongst women.'" Elizabeth goes on to describe Mary as the one who believed. This does seem to stand in stark contrast to Zechariah. Look back at verses 19 through 20. I love this passage, perhaps because my imagination is a bit crazy. The angel answering said unto him, I am Gabriel that stand in the presence of God and am sent to speak unto thee and to show thee these glad tidings. Behold, thou shalt be dumb and not able to speak. We know that angels are not made in the image of God like humans are, and I don't think they're robots. They do seem to possess emotions. I do not picture Gabriel here reciting this preordained judgment like a robot. Instead, Gabriel is put out, he is offended. He basically looks at Zachariah and says, listen here, punk, I'm an angel. I stand in the presence of God, and you have the audacity to doubt me? You want a sign? I'll give you a sign, zap what do you think of that? What's that you say? Oh, I can't hear you. That's from the Heim's radical non-standard version. Maybe Gabriel wasn't quite that jerk-like, but it's fun to me, for me to imagine. The point here, and yes, there is a point to all that. The point here is that Mary's character in contrast to Zachariah is in humble faith. When we turn to the story of Mary in Luke chapters 1 and 2, we do not see the exalted queen of heaven. We do not see an intercessor between us and God or between us and Jesus Christ. But what we do see is the handmaiden of the Lord. No godly minister of the word has any right, has any, has, should not at all even consider listening to someone that would exalt themselves as the queen of heaven, no matter what entity they are. But a godly minister of the word should definitely listen to the humble handmaiden of the Lord. We're going to approach Mary's song on three levels. The literary, the theological, and then the practical. First of all, the literary. The Holy Spirit is an artist, and so is his work. This is why you should all study the original languages. There will always be elements in the original languages. beauty of the original languages that frankly cannot be brought out in any translation, no matter how good. Hebrews 1.1 is one example I share with my students. The alliteration there cannot be brought out in any English translation, even though some try. Some have tried, but they always lose something in translation. First of all, Mary's poetry here, and it is poetry. Mary's poetry here is classic Hebrew poetry. And the identifying feature of Hebrew poetry, as we learn in Hebrew hermeneutics, is parallelism. Two lines in close connection that play off of each other either saying the same thing, or the second line expanding on the first line, or sometimes the two lines juxtaposed in ironic contrast. Verses 46 and 47, My soul doth magnify the Lord, and my spirit hath rejoiced in God my Savior. She could have said the same thing, basically the same meaning, with one sentence. We are not meant to parse the difference between those two lines, but we are meant to view those two lines as if different angles angles from which we could view a diamond. Verse 51, he hath showed strength with his arm. He hath scattered the proud in the imagination of their hearts. The second line expands on the first. How does God show strength? By scattering the proud. Verse 52, he hath put down the mighty from their seats and exalted them of low, low degree. The second line is an ironic reversal of the first. The very people that one would expect to be all high and mighty are pulled down from their thrones, while the poor, who are expected to sit quietly in the corner, are exalted to where the rich once were secondly mary uses vivid imagery and metaphor but not allegory poetry will often have a literal reference but it will describe the literal reference in a non-literal way for example if i describe aaron Rodgers as a raging bull on the gridiron of epic warfare if i do ever describe aaron Rodgers like that please hit me over the head with your bible but if i ever describe aaron Rodgers like that i am referring to a literal person but in a non-literal way when Mary says that God showed his strength with his arm, showed strength with his arm, she is not saying that God literally has a physical arm, any more than he has literal wings in Exodus nineteen four, how I bear you on eagles' wings. God is not a bird, neither is he a man. He is spirit. If God had a physical body, if God the Father had a physical body, there would have been no point to the incarnation in the first place. Yet having said that, we do not allegorize or spiritualize away Mary's statements. The rich in verse 53 does refer to the rich. In the same way that in the story of the rich man and Lazarus, Jesus is talking about a rich man. When Mary says the rich, she is talking about rich people, literally. At her point in time, the art of interpreting biblical poetry involves understanding how to use metaphorical language to refer to real people and events. The point in all this, though, is that Mary does not have a dull ritualistic faith. It is a vibrant faith that expresses itself creatively. creatively. The beauty of poetry is that it is meant to stir the emotions, not just give facts. That's why a significant portion of the Old Testament and some parts of the New Testament are poetry. The beauty of poetry is that it takes a simple idea that could be stated in one sentence and expands it to go on and on and on, giving you more and more sentences than was absolutely needed. For example, you could say, I aced my Greek quiz. Or you could instead say, having climbed the pinnacle of the paradigms, I planted my flag of conquest upon this Everest of quizzes, thumbing my nose at my roommates who faltered on the cliffs of rote memory, plummeting to the abysmal depths of academic ineligibility. (laughs) If that hit a bit too close to home for some of you, I apologize. Especially this time of year. True faith is vibrant. It is creative. It does not hide its joy, nor does it hide its grief. It finds a way to express itself. Our feeble attempts to express our praise to God may be the cosmic equivalent of a three-year-old drawing a picture for grandma. It's not going to go into a famous art gallery. And yet, and yet, and yet, that picture, that primitive picture is accepted with love by the grandmother. In the same way, we may not be able to write as artistically as Mary, But when we offer our praise to God, he accepts it. Why? Because we are his children, just as Mary was. Yet there's a more important literary feature here. Mary's poem is steeped in the language of Old Testament poetry. She rarely quotes directly from anything in the Old Testament, although verse 46 might be an exception because it really sounds a lot like Psalm 35 9. But nonetheless, Mary's poetry is the language of biblical poetry. There's a lesson for us here. There's nothing wrong with quoting non-inspired sources, even pagan sources. The Apostle Paul four times in Scripture quoted from a pagan source. Jude apparently quotes from 1 Enoch, and 1 Enoch at the literary level is about the equivalent of what would happen if Frank Peretti wrote a commentary on Genesis 6. It's that bizarre. Yet, despite that, we must ensure in our message that there is no doubt Where our source of authority comes from. There is no doubt where our counsel comes from. We must be so saturated in scripture in our speech, in our preaching, in our ministering, in our counseling. We must be so saturated in scripture that we could be accused of plagiarism. I have at one point in my life been to a liberal church. I was in Seattle visiting my uncle, and uh, he just mentioned a church down the road that because uh, I wanted someplace to go to, go to uh, Sunday morning service, so he just mentioned a church on the road, and naively I, I showed up. The minister preached from the newspaper. Like you've always thought, you've heard that perhaps before, but you've always thought it was a cliche. It's true. He actually preached for the newspaper. Dietrich Bonhoeffer Eighty years ago, when Dietrich Bonhoeffer visited America, he had criticism of fundamentalists, but he also had significant criticism of liberal churches, and his major criticism was that they'll preach anything but Christ. And that's true. We must be clear in our sermons, in our ministering, in our proclamation, that our language is thoroughly from the Old Testament. In fact, there's a point in Richard Hayes' Uh, fantastic New Testament scholars written on this. There's a point in which you can actually do so unintentionally. It's called an echo because you're so immersed in the language of Scripture. Well, this is Mary. She might not even be able to, at that point she's composing this message, this psalm, she might not even be able to tell you specifically which parts of Scripture her, her poetry come from. But it's all from Scripture. It's interesting, Mary, a humble peasant girl, may not have even known how to read or write. In fact, it's highly likely she did not know how to read or write. But she knew her scripture. Luke may have been the first person to write down her poetry on on papyrus, and yet she knew her scripture. In fact, there are some literary clues here that Mary is patterning her poetry after the Song of Hannah in 1 Samuel 2, 1 through 10. There are some key differences. Hannah is a bit more direct when she goes after people. Uh, verse, verse 3, 1 Samuel 2:3, is very interesting. She's, the, the verb there is plural, which I didn't realize that until I double-checked it this morning in, in the Hebrew. The verb there is plural, so she's going after a lot of people. But I do think she includes there in 1 Samuel 2:3, I do believe she's including her rival wife. And I think basically what she's saying is: In your face, honey, because God knows what you're really like. Again, the Heims radical non-standard version. <laughs> which will totally not become the official Bible of BCM anytime soon. (laughs) Mary is not quite as direct in her feelings to specific people. She stays a bit more generic, I think. And yet, she follows the basic theological theme as Hannah. And here I want to switch into some theological perspectives on Mary's poetry. First and foremost, God is overwhelmingly the subject of the poem, of Mary's poem, as well as Hannah's poem. It is consistently on God's mighty deeds that Mary focuses. Even when she refers to herself, my soul, my spirit, that's only a vehicle to describe the acts of God. For he hath regarded, for he that is mighty, his mercy, he hath showed strength. She does refer to herself as the object of God's blessing in verse 48, but that is simply in passing to express her own personal reasons for magnifying the Lord. Without a doubt, God is the primary actor in this drama. God is the great reverser. In this poetry, he delights in turning things upside down. He delights in in making the strong weak and the weak strong when the weak put their faith in him. Mary herself realizes this because personally she is weak, she is poor, she is rejected, she is downtrodden. Yet God makes her a blessing over all those who, by virtue of their place in society, would have thought that they would have deserved that spot. God, did, and this is a consistent theme throughout Scripture, God does not exalt Israel in the Exodus because they are mighty. He exalts them because they are poor and downtrodden and persecuted. God blesses Leah because she is hated by her husband. God gives her the messianic line over Rachel. God gives a child to Hannah because she is mocked. God raises up David, the least of his brothers. The Messiah is born in Bethlehem of all places, not New York City. God is the advocate of the humble. The more someone focuses on their own work, their own deeds, their own ministry, their own awesomeness, their own skills, the more God becomes in opposition to him because God resisteth the proud but giveth grace to the humble. This also means that God is the source of justice. Because he has the prerogative of making the strong weak and the weak strong, of making the rich poor and the poor rich, of making the mighty weak and the weak mighty. That is his prerogative. That means he someday will pull down the proud politicians of the earth, be they Republican or Democrat. He will someday dethrone the rulers that exalt themselves and oppress God's people. He will someday empty the bank accounts of the rich. But here is the key point. Mary understood this, but so many people miss it. God does it on his time. This means that true justice in society, whether that be for black or white or Asian or rich or poor or children or the elderly or the, or the citizen or the fugitive or the refugee or immigrant, true justice in society is certainly worth praying for, but it will not be actualized until God Almighty steps into history and directly intervenes. It is within a democratic society legitimate to work for change, within the laws to work for justice, Yet we must realize that without God, all man's attempts at social justice will falter, or even worse, will bring about its own brand of injustice. Furthermore, when we personally take it upon ourselves to right the wrongs of society through actions that disrupt society, we are taking upon ourselves a prerogative that belongs to Almighty God himself. Now, lest you think I'm preaching to the choir here, let me emphasize that this works both ways. Both political conservatives and political liberals have their share of people that fall under Mary's condemnation. Last I checked, there is none that doeth good. No, not one. Their throat is an open sepulcher. With their tongues they have used deceit. The poison of asps is under their lips. That is not a truth that is filtered through one's choice of political parties. It applies universally to all. Extreme loyalty to either side or any individual associated with either side to bring about justice and truth is doomed to bitter disappointment. Mary lived under the dominion, domination of the Roman Empire, the so called Pax Romana, peace of Rome that was nonetheless enforced through violence. She also endured, however, the political squabbles of her own people, which I think is partially in view in her psalm as well. Studying the politics of Judea in the hundred years before Jesus Christ makes the Kennedy family look like Mr. Rogers' neighborhood. So without a doubt, Mary is speaking politically, not just spiritually. We do not just sweep everything under the rug and allegorize and and spiritualize it. She is speaking spiritually. She is uh, literally of, of politics. She is speaking of justice within society. Yet she has no intention of taking up arms against Rome or even her own corrupt leaders because she trusts in God, the source of justice, to be able to stir up all the trouble that needs to be stirred up. Yet the God of mighty deeds, the God of justice, who will execute his wrath against the oppressor, he is also God of mercy. Verse 50. And his mercy is on them that fear him. To those that exalt themselves, he will act with wrath swiftly. Yet to those who humble themselves, who cry out to him in faith, he is compassionate, he is merciful, he hears their cry. Leon Morris writes, Mary sings of a God who is not bound by what people do, i.e. their great deeds, He turns human attitudes and orders of society upside down. Does this not foreshadow the very Messiah that Mary is going to give birth to in a few months? The rich and the mighty and the powerful reject him. He hangs out with publicans and sinners. He is unimpressed by the feast of a Pharisee. But when a woman who is a sinner dares to wash his feet with her tears, he blesses her. Not many wise men after the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called, but God hath chosen the weak things of the world to confound the things which are mighty, that no flesh should glory in his presence. This is Mary's theology. Consequently, when we emphasize Mary's faith, we must remember that it's not some generic wishy-washy feeling, certainly not the believe-in-yourself message that pop culture likes to trumpet. Rather, Mary, she who believes has believed in the message of this God who delights to turn things upside down, who delights to make things topsy-turvy, who does not listen to the standards of society, but he bends down with merciful ear to hear the cries of the poor and humble. I wonder which class we're in, which classification we belong to. Thirdly, though, Mary sees a continuity between her position and that of salvation history throughout all Israel's history. Verses 54 through 55, Her miraculous pregnancy, carrying the Son of God, is not that surprising from a certain perspective. It is simply the continuation of God's gracious covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Salvation is of the Jews, and those who would be saved must turn to the Jewish Messiah. This is precisely the point, as Daryl Bach points out, this is precisely the point that keeps us from going down the road to the heresy of liberation theology. True social justice can never be acquired from anybody acting on their own initiative, no matter how well-intentioned. Too many corrupt dictators have been thrown down to put just, uh, just as much of a corrupt dictatorship in their place. To think that we can permanently change society for the better by our own deeds completely misses the point of Mary's psalm. It is God's covenant with Abraham that will change society, and these shall all the families of the earth be blessed. That is the only hope for the Gentile world and for the Jewish world. Not my own activism. Mary's song is not about us overthrowing corrupt systems of government. It is about turning in faith to the one who will, in the end, intervene in history and have every knee bow before him. Mary's song is political, but it is not communistic or socialistic. It is not even capitalistic. It is not democratic. It is not republican. it is not democratic. It is about a monarchy. It is about the coming King. In other words, if we have trusted Jesus for the salvation of our eternal soul, we can also trust in Jesus Christ to make things right on earth when he comes again. It is an an anticipation of that that we proclaim the glory of the creator God. Now let's bring Mary's Magnificat down to earth and talk about how we can apply it to our lives. First and foremost, the application of faith. Faith is long term. When we believe God regarding his word, all other issues, like what will people think of me, what will happen to me here, all other issues are mere peripherals. Consider Mary's statement in 248. For he hath regarded the lowest state of his handmaiden, for behold, from henceforth all generations shall call me blessed. From henceforth. Mary is thinking long term here. Certainly a few people here and there in her lifetime would call her blessed. And yet, John 8, 41 indicates there's a significant amount of scandal surrounding Mary's life. It's disturbing. It's interesting and disturbing that we never actually see Mary's mother or father anywhere in Scripture. They're just flat out not there. The silence is deafening. It makes you wonder. I can't say any more than that, but it certainly makes you wonder. We must then, like Mary, think long-term. The faith that you are expressing this week is not actually about this week. Well, it sort of is, but not primarily. It's about the future. Faith does not necessarily expect an immediate payoff because God's timeline is not our timeline, and a day with the Lord is as a 1,000 years, and a 1,000 years is one day. Yet faith will vindicate. It may not be now, it may not be in the immediate future, but faith vindicates. When you act in faith, trusting in God to perform his word as Mary did, future generations will sit up and take notice. The judgment seat of Christ will vindicate you even if people here do not. That is so because God does not, he cannot let down the child who comes to him in faith, who takes his word seriously. God honors our faith, though it may take time. Yet God will not heap honor upon those who focus on their own deeds, on who I am, on our personal identity. And that's our second point of application. It's not about you even when it is. It's not about you even when it is. It's fascinating. Mary says, "For behold from henceforth all generations shall call me blessed." There is actually one person in the Gospel of Luke that calls Mary blessed after the first two chapters. One person. And interestingly, Luke is the only gospel so far as I could tell, Luke is the only gospel to record this incident. It makes you wonder. In Luke chapter 11, 27 through 28, an unnamed woman calls Mary blessed. And what does Jesus say? Does he say, Aha, told you, yep, Mary's blessed, all right? No, he actually deflects the praise away from her. Jesus says, Jesus says, Yea, rather, blessed are they that hear the word of God and keep it. And the, that phrase, yea, rather, that's actually one word in Greek, it is not the normal word for yes. It rather is quite often a word of contrast. Instead, blessed are those, uh, bless, blessed are those who hear the word of God and keep it. Why does Jesus do that? I mean, wouldn't this be a fulfillment of Mary's prophecy? The problem is that the woman in that, the unnamed woman in that passage, does not bless Mary for expressing faith. She does not bless Mary for all that God has accomplished through her. She actually blesses Mary for just being a mother, the mother of the Messiah. She blesses Mary for birthing and feeding the Messiah. And when she does that, she misses the entire point of Mary's psalm because Mary's psalm is not about her mothering the Messiah. Mary's psalm is about the great deeds that God Almighty has done through her so that the world can sit up and notice God, not Mary. And I cannot but help but think if somehow... In Luke, in, in, Luke chapter, in Luke chapter 11, 27 through 28, if somehow this is perhaps not a typological prophecy of the Roman Catholic Church, where they have ceased to declare the mighty works of God and instead focused on Mary, the mother of God. However, we might parse that phrase, which brings up interesting questions. <laughs> we won't go there today. The point of Mary's praise, the point of Mary's psalm was to declare the glories of God It was all about what God has accomplished through her. Yet in Luke 11, Mary is being praised for motherhood, for who she is, and Jesus will not allow that. How much more is Jesus' grieved when Mary is practically deified? My friends, there are people here who will go on to do great things in faith. There are people here who will start churches, who will preach revivals, be the first person to bring the gospel to a forgotten tribe, translate the Bible into another language, reach hundreds. Your faith will accomplish great things. Yet it is precisely at that point where the temptation will come to you to accept blessing and praise on the basis of what you have accomplished through faith, not what God has accomplished. That is when the danger comes. When praise is on the basis of who you are, When your name exclusively is attached to ministry, when you alone are what comes to people's mind when they think of of your work, it is at that point when you're in danger. If it is your persona, your charisma, that people think of primarily, that is when you're in danger. So what's the solution? Always, always, always deflect praise back to God, like Jesus does in Luke 11, like Mary does in Luke 1. I like what Alexander McLaren says here. We magnify God when we take into our vision some fragment more of the complete circle of his essential graces or when by our means, our fellows are helped to do so. May your ministry cause others to focus on God. May your ministry consistently deflect back to the glory of God. And when God's mighty deeds are what are emphasized by your ministry, Then you don't have to worry about your own status. You don't have to worry about the people around you. And you don't have to worry about who's on the throne. You don't have to worry about the world around you, the rich, the powerful, the political turmoil. Which brings us to our third point of application. When we proclaim Christ as Lord, we won't have to stress about who's president. (laughs) Mary was fully aware that those with power could and would abuse it. That injustice runs rampant. In fact, She would have been surprised if it were otherwise. I think we've been so blessed in America, which, compared to most of the rest of the world, does not have as much corruption. We've been so blessed that we almost expect the opposite to be true. But the fact is, when unbelievers, and even some believers, when they're in charge, injustice will occur. It's the natural way of the world, and that won't change until Jesus Christ reigns from the throne of David in Jerusalem. Mary did not waste her time blogging about conspiracy theories or venting anti-esta- anti-establishmentarian rants on the radio. It took me a while to learn that word. Or selling rocket launchers to whoever she thought could pull down the social order. She simply pointed forward to the point in time where God Almighty would intervene in history and change things for the better. The Messiah that she would give birth to would be the harbinger of that. My friends, there is nothing wrong with letting your political preferences be known, politely commenting on social issues, voting for a particular party, working for change. There's certainly nothing wrong with that. The problem is not in being political. The problem is forgetting that we must offer our loyalty to the king who will upend the social order, not a party or a president. The proclamation Jesus Christ is Lord must always Trump vote Republican, pun partially intended. Finally, and perhaps the most obvious point of application, is praise. Praise God for the little things. Praise God for the great things. Praise God specifically. Praise God artistically. Praise God without worrying what other people around you will think. Praise God to the believer. Praise God to the unbeliever. Praise God so that the whole world can hear. Praise God with a loud voice in the open fields, preferably not in your room at midnight. Praise him in a whisper on your bed at 1 a.m., though. Praise God, to praise his virtues, praise his mighty acts, praise his kessed, his loving kindness. Praise him like Mary, praise him like Moses, praise him like David, praise him like Hannah, but also praise him in a way that's unique to you that has never been done before. Praise him in the midst of lament when darkness threatens to overwhelm your day and praise him also in times of joy and happiness. Praise him in faith, though, for future generations like Mary did. So here's the question: What legacy are we living? Are we leaving for the future generations? Are we thinking long term with our faith? Is this for us? Is our faith being expressed for us, so the people sit up and take notice of us, or are we expressing it long term for the next generations? Is it your faith in God? Is it your work, your deeds that your faith will accomplish that will make you blessed? Or is it what God is accomplishing through you that will make make you blessed? I guess the question is, who's the primary actor in your life? Who gets the attention? Third, always take pains to exalt God over politics. He is the one who will make things right again, not a president, not a political party, not a radio station. Fourth, have an attitude of praise, thinking long-term of what God will accomplish in the next generations.